0: Tonight, I'd like to talk about the doubting mind. And um, as I go through retreat after retreat, uh, I'm struck uh, both by the sincerity and by the pain of the people who participate in it. And I think uh, there's a psychological epidemic that uh, confronts us that's of. huge proportion of our people, of our community, not just here, but uh, in most Western cultures. And that is the pain of insufficiency, of inadequacy, unworthiness, that throb being of pain of inward poverty. And uh, it it's something that Uh, I feel is very important for us to address, to look straight at, to try to gain some understanding and some interest in. Uh, The reason that it's so difficult is that the things that we most believe in hold the greatest pain for us. So those areas of ourselves that we really believe are true hold the greatest uh, source of pain in our life. <clears throat> and proportional to that pain is our desire to escape it. Now, escaping insufficiency or the lack of self-confidence, you might say, uh, has two main roots. There are infinite variety of these Um, paths that I will speak about, but the two main ways that people try to escape it is one either towards self-protection or self-insulation, which can lead to a kind of arrogance or anger or external blame, and that's a whole character pattern that falls into that particular uh, style of behavior. And the other is um, self-blame, the self-recrimination. It, will, will you take it in, the shame, the guilt. Uh, and and it, it's all about me. The sense of doubt and insufficiency is all about what I can't do. <clears throat> Whereas the self-protected mode doesn't let it in. keeps that pain externalized projected outward, and it's all about the other and insulates oneself from their own sense of pain. Now, the person who is self-insulated and self-protected is afraid, above all else, of their self-doubt, and their arrogance is a reaction to that sense of self-doubt. Whereas the person who is self-recriminating implodes in that self-doubt, personifies it, speaks from it, believes themselves to be that aspect of mind. Now, I'd like people to look at the statue behind me, because in that statue is the great historical reference to doubt. In our tradition, with the Buddha's right hand, he is touching the earth. He happened to be touching the earth because he made an unwavering commitment to himself. He said, I'm not going to get up here until I understand. Period. When we make that kind of commitment, do you think the mind rolls over and says, Okay, <laughs> you're in charge? Take it away. No. In fact, the more firm our commitment, the more resolved the mind is, is to undermine that commitment. You'll see it. You'll see it. you see it in yourself. When you take a resolve, I'm going to sit every day. How longs it last? I'm not going to miss a breath. So the Buddha was um, the last vestige, you might say, of psychological energy that was still in him, was doubt. Was doubt. And how it ever came out, I don't know. I mean, the story is all historically. But it was doubt, basically. And the gesture that he made to counter that doubt is, I hope that we all can understand this, because I think it is the um, methodology, the tool, the way to find your way out of this pattern. He He says, this is the place I am. This is it. One can doubt not doubt one's place. You can't doubt that. To doubt that is to doubt the Dharma. There's no, this is my place, there's no should I or must I or could I or can I, it is we're here. I'm here. We begin to understand the strength of touching the earth when we come, when we approach our integrity. Because through integrity, there is a knowing of oneself, self-knowledge. I was a monk in Thailand, and they were having a, a big ceremony in the monastery I was staying in in South Thailand, Uh, one of the big holidays, Buddhist holidays, and all of the surrounding villagers were coming in to offer food to the monks that were gathered. And uh, there were two Western monks, myself and another person, staying at the monastery at that particular time. And, of course, it was very important for us to show up on time because we sort of carried the reputation of our culture with us as we made our way uh, through the monastery. But at the same time that the bell was ringing to call the monks forth, I heard my friend, whose uh, hut was just a few hundred yards from mine, sort of beating on his cottage. And so I ventured over to pick him up on the way to the ceremony, and it turns out that there was a poisonous snake that had fallen from the tree. He had seen it fallen, and we knew that particular snake to be poisonous. that had gotten into his rafters of his little cottage and he was trying to scare it out so that he wouldn't have to come back and not know where it is and try to sleep in that cottage. You can hear the dilemma. (laughs) So I helped him, but it took much longer than I thought it would. In fact, it was probably 20 minutes to half an hour before we were able to get that snake off the rafters and fleeing across the sands. So we were walking down towards a ceremony and we could hear the ceremony, the monks chanting and the ceremony having begun. And I was going, oh my God, this is, the, this is my worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Western monks showing up late for a ceremony, a thousand, well, not that, hundreds of people. And my friend says to me, Rodney, you have nothing, nothing to excuse yourself. He said, you helped me when, I was need- when it was needed. And immediately I lined up with my integrity. See, immediately I touched the earth. You know what you're doing and why you do it. You don't doubt it. And you can feel the value of integrity. You can feel the value of ethical life. Of a life that, okay, yes, I know what I'm doing here. And the intention of that, that's it. And so we walked into the ceremony, and of course the monks didn't look at us, but all the other people did. Monks would never look at you like that. And we sat down, and that was it. And no one asked us where we were, and we never explained. How many times in our life have we had that sense? We did something that was right, but, but the doubt surfaces, and then we have to explain ourselves away, even though the integrity is the basis of the, of the touch. I know where I am, and I know why I'm here. And when the Buddha lined up that last vestige Psychic energy. When he lined it up to his integrity, that was his awakening. When we stay fractured with the pain of our worry, of our insufficiency, when we stay escaping and fleeing into activity instead of touching the earth, come what may. See, that's the touching of the earth. Come what may. Then we're aligned. And the knock will be answered. Why is it so difficult for us to align that way? Because we are a thought and knowledge based culture. That's just the fact. We value knowledge as our sacred. The universities are our cathedrals at this time in our history. So what we believe, because knowledge leads to beliefs, it doesn't lead to the integrity of the touch. It leads to belief. That is what we know about ourselves, is what other people have told us about ourselves, or what we have discerned through other people's actions towards us not through actually touching the fabric of our own integrity not through looking at ourselves in an authentic way and what do we think is going to arise when we begin to interface with the unknown which is dharma we don't have the only thing we have brought to the unknown up until this time is our knowledge because we're knowledge-based, we're thought-based. But this is the end of knowledge. This is where knowledge ceases to have a path for us, ceases to provide the continuity of the touch. It's severed. So we fall back on the weakest point in our psyche, which is our insufficiency, which manifests as doubt. I can't. because we have, no, we have very little fiber of self-knowledge, experiential self-knowledge. And so this pattern of wavering is very epidemic, and it's one where it frightens us to death. And I say this with um, kindness, but determination, I hope you can hear both because it's not to ridicule this but it's to be unwavering. I don't care. I'm touching the earth. I remember when I was a young meditation student in experience and in age, believe it or not, uh, staying here for month after month. I was the first LTY that ventured these halls. That's long-term yogi. And I was having—I was just seething in my self-doubt, just seething. I, I, I wanted it to be true, the Dharma to be true, but my doubt kept undermining that possibility. And I was too afraid to look at the Dharma critically and look at it to see if it could test and hold that critical stare. Uh, so I would falter. And I went to my teacher at that time, and I said, um, you know this to be true. And he looked me in the eye, and he said, yes. And the way he said yes brought me right there. He touched the earth with me. And I started just uh, crying because there was so much pain associated with the doubt of my predicament and of that time for me. Remember that our default position is the place where we're most in pain, the place where we're most neurotic is another way of saying that. And for most of us, that is our doubt. In The Life of Pi, I liked this quote. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. (laughs) So what is it that comes out of us when we are given what seems to be an impossible task? In fact, it is an impossible task. Let me show, tell you now that meditation is meant to break you. Okay? So if you feel like you can't do it, that's what's supposed to happen. Why is it meant to break you? To show you that you are not in control of the actions, of the arising, of the of the events that you have assumed to be. And until you're broken in your efforts to adjust your internal world, the dharma can't come in. Your heart can't engage fully. This thing will remain unknown. It will remain your empowered dharma course. Until we surrender is another way of saying it. And so, of course, the breath remains aloof. And of course, the mind thinks. And of course, emotions arise and feelings. The point, and this was touched by Christina on the opening day, is to learn about that. Not to foster the fact that we can't with our self-doubt. When we extend the effort, what happens is that we accentuate the self doubt because we can't do it. And then we will make a noble effort, but not a genuine effort because we really don't believe we can do it. But everybody else looks like they are. Matter of fact, there are 99 Buddhas and one jerk in this room. <laughs> We don't understand it. We don't we aren't we don't see it from the inside. We see it from the what we're trying to run from, from the patterns that are so deeply ingrained in us prior to arriving that play themselves out. The thing that is closest at hand, that which is pushing us is that which we, we most desperately need to know. The thing that we most desperately need to see instead of riding the wave of our doubt, let us look at it. Let us touch it as the Buddha did. This is where I am. Come at me if you want to. I'm not moving. You see, it's okay if you think no one is getting it. But then in the groups, you begin to hear that some people are. And then, oh my God, now I'm in a real (laughs) panic. So what does self-doubt do when it feels caged? When it feels that genuinely it can't do it? The first thing to do is to admit it. Because if you... If, you, if it remains buried unconsciously, it will have all sorts of play out in our world. But what, it, what happens if it remains unconscious is that you look for somebody who can do it. Somebody to conform, somebody to lead you, somebody to be an authority for you. All because we aren't acknowledging the doubt. You must know. Please tell me you know. Or the tradition must know. I will become a Buddhist. We have come here to see if the Buddhist truths are relevant to us, not necessarily to be a Buddhist. Those are two very different things. To be a Buddhist feels like a safe harbor from my doubt. Well, look, I've got... Lineages behind me. I've got thousands of years of history. I can feel safe now. Are these truths still relevant now for us? And of course, the way has to be rediscovered by each traveler. And so each traveler has to deal with the doubt that is inevitable when you face a task that is meant to break you. And remember, I think, above all else, that the Dharma is not sameness, it's not conformity, it's not sitting as well as your neighbor, because that's what conformity tries to do, it tries to make the Dharma the same, uniform. The Dharma is alive, it's vital, it's different for each one of us, the expression of ourselves is unique, but the vitality is rich, So the person of self-protection, the person of self-recrimination, says, I can't do it. But the person of self-protection doesn't say, I can't do it. That's not the way this goes. It goes, this isn't worth doing. (laughs) It's not about me, because the arrogance won't allow it to be about them. It's about the task so I'm going to try something else. You see? And then we just go from here to there. And then, of course, that same person, once they do find a spiritual home, will compare their spiritual home to others and judge it and condemn and Talk about theirs as being better than. Now, I want to tell you that most spiritual traditions, including this one, have a non-escape clause. And it's important to know the non-escape clause of every tradition. When I was a monk, again, <clears throat> there was a, um, a, mon- a monastic group that Uh, when they took robes, they were going to stay monks for their life. That was sort of their inward commitment. But being young and commitments don't mean much, really. And after a few years, this one monk that I was very close to really wanted to disrobe and wanted to do it for what I could perceive as exactly the right reasons. As if you needed a right reason. But as soon as the other monks caught wind that this person's faith was shaky or that this person really, faith wasn't shaky, it was really that their interests were moving outside of that particular way of practice. You, the way they hammered him and the way they said, you're just giving into your ignorance. Can't you see that as just doubt? That's one of the hindrances. Just see it as doubt. Until the person at night disrobed himself and fled. Watch the non-escape clauses and whatever spiritual tradition you're involved in. Because there is doubt, and then there is the knowing, and those are two different resonances What I do and Christina and all the other teachers when you come in for interviews is just try to get you in touch with your knowing. We don't offer that kind of advice that takes you away from your knowing. We just want to clear away the smoke screen so that you can know what you need to do for yourself. Sometimes that knowing is camouflaged by doubting. I had, in another retreat, I had someone come to me very genuinely and plead his case that he wanted to do metta, expecting an argument from me. And he was telling me all the ways that metta was serving him, and he just he just felt like it was just absolutely the right practice for him, and much of the way that Christina's talk last, last night. And then he looked at me and says, do you think that's the right practice? And I said, no, we've got to look at that doubt together. I didn't even, I didn't, you don't, I don't even answer that. He knows it's right. But I wanted to bring the doubt out. Because if that doubt leads the knowing, then the knowing will never surface. The knowing is the only thing we have in this business. That deep knowing And if we give up that, we give up everything. Krishnamurti said, never give up the power to make decisions for yourself. It's the most important power you have. And if the doubt remains in check ensconced and calcified within us so that we don't let it out, so we don't begin to know that doubting is arising, that we don't begin to touch the ground of our own sanity, then it starts seeking meditation as an ideal. It starts creating, since there's such inward poverty, this dharma can't be about me. And we create this enormous Gap or distance between ourselves and where the practice is supposed to take us, and we never reach that because the paramis. You don't understand how lack my lack of generosity, how selfish I am, how impatient, how unethical. All the reasons that we have, and we never we never cross that gap. We never cross that ideal. And it remains, you know how we fill it? With time. It may take lifetimes. As if now we're going to be any better 20 lifetimes from now. As if now somehow held some kind of different reference. Because time never puts an end to itself. Not unless the doubt is seen which is driving the time. And you know what comes out of that? Because when we look inside, we see only our own impoverishment. God is what comes out of that. That's where God comes from. And we don't see our own goodness. One of the hardest things to do is to see your own kindness. basic goodness. We're too worried about being late to the ceremony to see the altruistic act we just did. And so we feed, even our own goodness feeds our doubt. And so, doubt ultimately is the absence of self love. Where our unworthiness speaks. And doubt looks for proof not to doubt, because that's how a knowledge based culture looks. That's what science does. It says, show me. And then I know not to doubt. Show me proof that I am as worthy as you. Say, I can't show you that proof, but I can show you your doubt. That's the proof. Because the doubt isn't true. When the Buddha touched the earth, he confirmed the untruth of doubt. He confirmed its lie. He confirmed its lie from him, through me, to all of you. He's behind. He's, that's it. He's confirmed it now. It wasn't true then. It's not true now. But the belief holds such a, it's like the worst thing. You don't understand, Rodney. I really believe it. I know you you do. I know you do. But it's still not true. It just isn't. You haven't failed. I don't care what your history says. This moment has endless possibilities. This moment is unformed. That's the truth. If you want to reform it, then you will do so. But it remains potentially unformed forever. That's why it's untrue. But when knowledge is our source of image, then to hold the image is more important than facing the truth of that image. Facing the truth of that image scares us because it puts us into the unknown and I have nothing to back me up then. At least the image is comfortable. At least it's recognizable. At least I can relax in it even if it's painful. And so I carry it forth. But you know what? The whole of the Dharma is unprovable. How can you quantify love or awareness? There's no meter. Plus, we remain idle. So we're not accomplishing anything. So we're not forming images or creating something. So I can't show it to anybody to show what I've done for this week. What did you do? Well, tell them what you did. What'd you do? <laughs> right. And you'll see the nod of the head like, oh, yeah. And they'll throw you back on well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Done what? <laughs> we doubt not doing and we doubt doing. <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? That the things that are most precious to us are unquantifiable. You see, I mean, when, you're, when you're an efficiency expert, you want the nurse to give the pill on time. That's quantifiable. How many pills did you give in 15 minutes? That, I can calculate, I can plot that. But sitting by the bedside and holding the patient's hand isn't. So what gets subtracted when the pressures of productivity increase? Not, not the pill giving, but the bedside. The love. The connectedness. Because it's unprovable. I can show that the pill worked. At some point, you may be like I was. So hungry for the truth of dharma. That you're willing to go through the doubt of the dharma. And why do I say the doubt of the Dharma? Because many of us have doubt in the Dharma. I say test it. Throw your biggest argument at it. Throw it out in front of you. Rip it apart. Take apart everything, everything, everybody says of things you should do and things you must do and ways you must be and how you have to sit. Throw it right out there. Because if it doesn't hold up to your scrutiny, then it's not worth doing. To your insight, to your understanding, to your confidence, to your knowing. And the doubt will stay back in there and just continue to why am I doing this? What's, what am I doing now? Stand in that doubt. Stand right in it. That's the touching of the earth. Explore it from the truth of your awareness. Just let me look at this. Let me see it. I don't care where it takes me. I don't care how fearful I am that it may be true. If I can't test it, what am I doing? I'm wasting my time if I believe that it's that fragile, that the doubt actually contains the truth, I am wasting my time. And it keeps us from being completely devoted to completely arriving, from completely touching the earth, from completely aligning ourselves. Arresting this momentum of looking in terms of the future for salvation. It's a very alluring future, holds a lot of promise. But what about now? Now. And it begins by being willing to look toward pain, not away from pain. Toward pain. Okay, let me go into it. Don't want to? Acknowledge. I don't want to either. But there it is. And I see if I don't, I keep reacting to it and driving further and further. I can't run fast enough from it. It stays with me. As fast as I run, it runs. So I, that's it. I'm turning towards it. It's like a nightmare, right? One time I, I was having this reoccurring nightmare where I'd go up into one of the, like a haunted house, like the psycho house, and I'd go up into the attic and I'd have this terribly cold chill and I'd flee. And I'd have this again and again and again. I had it for months. And finally, something in the dream, I, I, I went up there, I felt the cold chill, and I plopped down afar and said, I'm not moving. And I never had the dream again. But it had to drive me that far. So hasn't the doubt driven us far enough? Hasn't it driven us far enough? Are we ready to turn towards it now and plop down, touch the earth? Come what may, I don't care, show up. If you prove the Dharma is wrong, fine. I won't do it. Good. I'll get out of all this. I didn't like it anyway. (laughs) Nobody will show up next retreat. (laughs) But if we're willing to go into it, because we have the capacity to hold it, we have the capacity to hold whatever pain comes, we don't have to flinch it's never been about us never pain's not about us historically you may be able to see how the pain was induced from whatever history you played out in your childhood on i don't know does that mean it's about us now not one bit but you don't understand i had this mother and that i don't care It's about now. And now is unformed. Now is not personalized. Now is not directed. It's not pointed. And therefore I can see anything. I can look anywhere. I can hold anything. Come at it. Let's come on. And we see the need to have an image even if it's an unsteady image of doubting and insufficiency. We see that. We see the need, the tightness of the grasp. We see the fear of the unknown of not having one. Okay, come what may. Come what may. I'm in this thing now. I'm halfway across. I can't just bail out. Let me, Come on. I might as well go all the way now. So let me see. The, look, go ahead. The mind's not going to roll over. You're not going to samadhi yourself out of doubt. You're not going to follow the progression of insight and... uh, You've got to face the pain. Why not? What do we have to lose? Only our doubt. May we all lose that. May all beings touch the earth, may all beings face their pain, may all deep beings prove out to be untrue.